you dive into scriptures, one of the things that becomes apparent really quickly is that God is very concerned that we don't fall into idolatry. And if you begin to think about idolatry and look at it in the scriptures, uh, you can discover that there are two kinds of idolatry. First kind is one we're probably more familiar with. It's when we take something that's not God and put it in the place of God in our lives. Now, in ancient days, people would use statues or things they carved as idols. We don't tend to do that in our culture. We, we are a little more subtle about it. But oftentimes, we look at things that are not God to do what God, only God can do in our lives. Maybe it's money, or maybe it's sex, or maybe it's a relationship, or a career, or education. And oftentimes, what becomes idols in our lives are not bad things, but good things that we turn into ultimate things. That's one form of idolatry. The other form of idolatry is when we uh, take God, and rather than letting him be who he is, we kind of mold him into what we want him to be. That's very subtle, and it's oftentimes hard to recognize. But when we make God into something he's not, and then worship that false conception of God, that's idolatry. And we do that a lot with Jesus. We make Jesus out to be a lot like us. We think if we're conservative, then Jesus definitely was a conservative. If we're a liberal, then we see Jesus as a rebel, kind of leaning to the left. If we're Republican, we're pretty certain Jesus would have been a Republican, forgetting that Democrats think he would have been a Democrat. After all, he, he, he rode a donkey. I mean... You never find him riding an elephant. I mean, that didn't happen. So a Marxist will make him into a communist, uh, 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 a capitalist will make him into a, a free market person. After all, he was all about freedom. We tend to make him like us. We think that he cared about what we care about, that his, our agenda was his agenda, that he looked like us, that he talked like us. I mean, I mean, you know, the language in heaven, right, is going to be English. We, we just construe everything as if he was us. And he's not. And that's idolatry. A number of years ago, and I may have shared this story before, a lady in our church, good lady, um, came to me. She was a gal who believed she heard God speak to her, and at times I think he did. She came to me and she said, Nick, God told me we were to put this, this portrait of Jesus on stage, this painting that she had come across. And it was huge. It was like 10 feet tall and 7 feet wide. And uh, I was a little hesitant. I said, you know, first of all, I need to see this thing before we put it on stage as a backdrop for, for worship. So I never got to see the painting, but she took a picture of it and showed me the picture and it was this picture of this guy that looked like uh, uh, Atlas. I mean, he was brute, he was muscular, he was Caucasian, he had long flowing hair. He looked like some guy off the front of a romance novel. <laughs> you know, Adonis. Oh, white, but with a good tan. And I, <laughs> I told her, I said, look, I don't know what Jesus looked like, but I do know he did not look like that. All right? He was a Middle Eastern Jewish peasant. 
not Adonis coming down from Mount Olympus. And she was angry with me. But to do that, to make Jesus into what we want him to be rather than who he is, is idolatry. It's absolutely critical that we understand the identity of Jesus. We come to a passage this morning that I think gives us a clear statement of who Jesus is. A really important passage is the passage of the first Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into to Jerusalem. It's, it's the, the event we celebrate and mark on this day. I, I know it's important because it's one of the few events that is recorded in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also John. Not very many events in Jesus' life are recorded in all four. And I think it's because the Gospel writers want us to understand who Jesus is. And this event helps us understand that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. A little bit of historical context will help us here. At this moment in history, Palestine, Israel, was occupied territory. They had been conquered by the Romans, and they were under the Roman boot. Uh, and Rome had one objective, and that was to pillage uh, Palestine, to exploit the people and the land for Rome's benefit. And um, they were ruthless about it. At this moment in history, uh, the Jews had no political power. They had puppet kings that the Romans controlled, but no ability to, to rule themselves at all. And the way the Romans exploited them was through taxation. Uh, and it was brutal. History tells us that at points they uh, taxed people at a 40% rate. And this was not the the very wealthy that were being taxed at that, that level. This was the common people. And it was difficult to pay. You would pay it with money if you could. If not, you would pay it with some of your crops. If you couldn't pay it with your crops, you'd pay it with your livestock. If you couldn't pay it with your livestock, you'd pay it with your land. And as a result, a huge percentage of the population was dispossessed. 
which is devastating to the social fabric in an agricultural community. It means people had no means of support. So the Jews were hungering, hungering for, for someone to come and, and give them freedom from the Romans. And they had this hope for a Messiah, this king that the Old Testament had talked about who was going to come in and conquer them and restore Israel. And that was their greatest hope. And the Romans' greatest fear is that somebody would come and try to be this king. In fact, above all else, they wanted social order because it allowed them to pillage. So one of the things they did, they, they built uh, a fortress called the Antonio Fortress, named after Mark Anthony. Four pillars, 14-story high. It was right on the edge of the Temple Mount where they would worship because the Romans believed that if, if a rebellion was going to happen, it would come out of the religious sector and from the Temple Mount. So they put their fortress there. There were 600 Romans in that fortress at all times. If you were on the Temple Mount, you could look up and see the glimmer of uh, the sun off their spears, ready at any moment to put down any kind of rebellion. Now at this point, the Jews were able to have a high priest but uh, the ceremonial robes that the high priest used were locked up. They didn't want any unsolicited uh, rebellion taking place because of the high priest. So they kept his, his ceremonial robes locked up in the fortress. And a few times a year, he could get access to them on high religious days. So like on Passover, he could go get the ceremonial robes and uh, perform the religious ritual. So it is into this context that uh, this event happens. The Romans are worried about a king showing up. The Jews are hoping one does. And on the first Palm Sun Sunday, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. Now Jesus had been in Jericho and he had started to make his way from Jericho to the Mount of Olives, to Bethphage and Bethany. They're both on the slopes of the Mount, Mount Olives, which is across from Jerusalem. You can look from Mount Olives and see Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. It's a beautiful place. That's the Temple Mount. Jesus has made his way to Bethany. And at Bethany, he, he does something really interesting. They had seen him heal Lepers uh, make the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. But, but at Bethany, he does something that's even more amazing. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He, he commands Lazarus to walk out of the grave, and he does. And, and so when that happens, there's a buzz. Because uh, um, people are wondering, who is this man? Now, there's lots of people around. This happens on a Sunday, which is the day after the Sabbath, so it's kind of like our Monday. It's Holy Week coming to the Passover. They're, 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 the pilgrims have just flooded into Jerusalem. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands. Some people estimate at times Jerusalem's population would swell to 2.5 million during these religious festivals. So this buzz is going all around. There, there's a bunch of nervousness in the air. And a strange thing had happened when 
Jesus had begun his walk from Jericho to Bethany and eventually to Jerusalem, he encounters two blind men. And you read about this in chapter 20, right before the passage we just read. And you read about it and you think, oh, yeah, another miracle. A miracle. Jesus sees two blind men and makes them see. But there's something more going on here. Let's, let's read it. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. That's interesting. This is kind of an ironic passage. Um, because these two blind guys called Jesus the son of David. Now, this is the first time that we've read that he has been called by that title. And it's a messianic title from the Old Testament. To call someone son of David was to say, oh, you're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one the Old Testament has prophesied. You're our hope. You're the king that, that, that's coming. Now, the irony is both these guys are blind. (laughs) Nobody else gets who he is, but the two blind guys, they got it pretty clearly. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah. First time publicly proclaimed, in fact, shouted and shouted again. So into this, Jesus does something very strange. He tells, two, uh, uh, he tells a number of his disciples to go and get him a donkey. A donkey. And tells them, look, if anybody gives you a hard time about taking the donkey, tell them they'll get it back and they'll let you take it. They go get this donkey. And his disciples lay their cloaks on it and he climbs on the donkey and he begins to go down from Bethany in the Mount of Olives. He's going to go across the Kidron Valley and he's going to go up into the temple area and to Jerusalem. That has huge significance. And when that starts, when he starts uh, teetering on the donkey down the hillside, people understand what's going on. This is the arrival of a king This is the coming of the Messiah, and they know it. So they take palm branches, uh, palm branches from fig trees, and they begin to cut them down and lay them on the ground. And the palm branch was this symbol of nationalism. It was kind of a symbol of their national hope that was fomenting in rebellion (laughs) against the Romans. They take these branches, they lay those on the ground, and then they take their cloaks, which goes back to an Old Testament character named Jehu. When he was announced as king, people laid their cloaks. They're laying out the red carpet for the coming king. And and then they begin to shout, Hosanna, which is like hooray, but as Larry mentioned, it's a prayer. Save us, save us, save us. It's a way of welcoming the Messiah, the king, is coming. And then they quote Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's this event that precipitates a crisis. 
Because the question is, what are they going to do with King Jesus? Are they going to crown him? Is he going to conquer? <laughs> or are they going to kill him? Because he fom he's fomenting rebellion. What's going to happen? Now the point of the story is really easily. The point of the story is Jesus is king. He's king. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and the Old Testament ex uh, uh, expectation. He's the one that, that was the center of their hope. He was the Messiah, the king, the anointed one. And, and just to make sure we understand that, Matthew takes us back to Zechariah, an Old Testament prophet, and he quotes for us a messianic passage it's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just so we don't miss it, Jesus is king. Now, one of the things that should do is make us wrestle with how we see Jesus. What kind of frame do we put around him in our understanding? In the New Testament, the primary frame is that Jesus is king, the anointed one. I think in the evangelical world we live in, the primary frame we use for Jesus is this phrase, personal savior. We refer to Jesus as my personal savior. What is interesting to me is that is not a biblical term. No place in scripture that you can find Jesus referred to as a personal savior. In fact, for the first 1,800 years of church history, nobody used that phrase. Nobody referred to Jesus in that way. That phrase comes out of 19th century revivalism. There's a man named Charles Fuller uh, who started in 19... 37, a radio program called the Old Fashioned Revival Hour. And he coined this phrase, personal savior, and he used it thousands and thousands and thousands of time over the radio waves from 1937 until 1968. And it became part of the fabric of our evangelical world. But it's kind of a strange phrase. I mean, we, 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 I don't refer to Larry as my personal friend. It's kind of like he's my personal butler or my personal genie. Uh, in some ways, it can be a good phrase. I mean, if when we say personal savior, we mean uh, Jesus is one I can have an intimate, real, personable relationship with, then that fits. But sometimes we use it to refer to, as, to Jesus as if he's all about me. He's my personal savior. And, and we imply by that that it's really about this private relationship of Jesus and me. And that's terrible. Jesus is not just about you. And he's not just about me. He didn't come just to save 
you or just to save me. And he's never referred to that way in the scriptures. I mean, when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying more than we realize. Christ is not his last name, right? It's, it's a title. And the word Christ means the anointed one. And it's a way of referring to his royalty, the fact that he's the anointed Messiah, the anointed king. It would be better if we translated it and said Jesus king. And then Lord is a title that indicates master, the one who makes commands, the one who is to be obeyed. When we talk about Jesus as Lord Jesus Christ, that's what we're saying. We're saying he's the king that, that uh, we are to obey. It, it's interesting. The word Savior in, is used of Jesus 18 times in the New Testament. And not once in those 18 times is he referred to as my Savior. He's always referred to as our Savior. And if you look at the context of when he's called our Savior, it's always big. It's always talking about him saving the world or saving the church, or saving Israel. It's as if he's coming and doing this cosmic thing. It's never a small thing. He's referred to as Lord over 400 times. Now realize, folks, there is a big difference between a king and a Savior. When I refer to him as my Savior, it's as if it's all about me. When you refer to him as king, well, then it's all about him. Uh, a Savior can be a one-time encounter where he saves you and he plucks you out of the fire and now you're saved. But if he's a king, that's an ongoing relationship. Saviors don't expect much. Kings expect everything. They have agendas. They expect allegiance and loyalty and obedience. Kings tell you to lay down your life for their kingdom. Kings demand everything. Now, don't mishear me. I am not saying that Jesus can't be your savior or your counselor or your guide or your shepherd or your friend. He can be all that, but he will be none of it unless he is your king. king uh, Jesus will not tolerate simply being an add-on to your life. He wants to be the center of your life or no part of your life. There's all kinds of people who admire Jesus and want to pray to him when they're in trouble and turn to him in a crisis. But Jesus will have none of that unless he is your king. He wants all of you or none of you. And that's the point. He is king over all and over us. And we cannot turn Jesus into something he's not. And we can't let our American individualism reshape Jesus into something smaller than he is. He's not just my personal savior. He's my Lord 
and my king. So, if Jesus is king, then the question comes, what kind of king is he? And it's interesting that Jesus was very different, a very different kind of king than the Jews expected. You know, think about what they expected. They wanted someone to come in uh, riding a war horse who was going to conquer and kick out the Romans. They wanted somebody who was going to make Israel great again. That was their expectation. But that's not what they got. They got a guy riding a donkey. This king is far different than they hoped for or expected. In fact, I want to go back to to Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9 is quoted in the passage in Matthew, but it's interesting to go back and read on in that text. He talks about, see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, slowly and riding on a donkey on the colt, the foal of a donkey. But then he says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Two things. This king is bigger than they ever hoped bigger than they ever hoped. I mean, let's go back to the text. He says, I will take the chariots away. Chariots were like the tanks of the day. He's saying, I'm going to destroy all the tanks. I'm going to get rid of all the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He's saying, look, I'm going to put an end to war. Not not just war in Israel, but war on the earth. I'm going to put an end to war. This king's bigger. They just wanted someone to, to free Israel, and he said, no, no, no. I have a bigger agenda at hand. Notice he says, I will proclaim peace to the nations. And the word for nations is the word goy. It means Gentiles. And he's saying, look, I'm not coming simply to be king over Israel. I'm coming to be king over all the nations. In fact, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All of it is mine, and I am coming to rule all of it. He was bigger than they hoped. Much bigger. You know, I think one of the problems we have with Jesus is we make him far too small. And and we make his agenda far too small. We think Jesus is really about our personal happiness. That he wants to come into our life and and make us all we can be. We we think that he's there simply just to rescue us uh, out of... uh, a a tough spot or out of hell and get us to heaven and we think that's his agenda when his agenda is so much bigger than any of that but we miss it I mean in fact when we tell people how to come to Jesus we tell them to pray this prayer we're there to invite Jesus into their lives really is that what we're doing are we inviting the cosmic king of the universe to become a part a part of our story Really? It seems to me that when we come to Christ, what we should be doing is saying, thank you for allowing me to become part of your story. His agenda. It's not about us. 
It's not about my life. It's about my life being consumed in his life. He's doing an amazing thing. And he gives us the privilege of joining in to his kingdom coming, to the up there coming down here. <laughs> I mean, when you become a Christian, the reality is you don't invite him into your life. You throw yourself down on the ground, acknowledge him as Lord, give him your total allegiance and loyalty, and believe in what he's done on the cross and his resurrection. That's what's really going on. He doesn't want to be part of your life. He wants you to be part of his agenda because he's king. It's not about you. It is about him. Somehow we've missed that. But the amazing thing is if we understand it's about him and we get to be part of that story, then our life takes on incredible meaning, right? We're telling creatures. We want to live lives filled with significance, purpose, meaning. And we're looking at how to do that. And we think, oh, if I accomplish a lot, if I accumulate a lot, if I get a lot of recognition, that'll fill my life with meaning. But these things are just aromas that dissipate. After all, we, we don't live forever. We die, and all our accomplishment and accumulation recognition disappears with our death. But Jesus isn't the aroma of meaning. He's the meal. And he's saying, come partake of me, because when you partake of me, you get to be part of what I'm doing in the world. You get to be part of my story. And that's how you find meaning, tying yourself to something bigger and grander and more important than yourself. To participate in his kingdom story is what makes life have purpose. Jesus is the king who's bigger than we ever hoped. But you know what else? He is also the king that is gentler than we ever expected. They were expecting a guy on a war horse who's going to conquer and throw out the Romans through his power and his violence. And what they get is a guy riding a donkey. Now, in that culture, if you came in riding a donkey, it means you wanted peace. If you came in riding a donkey, it meant you were there to serve. If you were a general and you went into war, into battle riding a donkey, it meant you were going to get slaughtered. It would have been better to be on foot than on a donkey. But Jesus shows up on the colt of a donkey. The lion comes as a lamb. He's going to conquer but not through his power and his violence and his might. But he's going to conquer by laying down his life by sacrificial love. Let's go back to the passage in Zechariah. This is interesting. As for you, it says at the end, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. That blood of the covenant is a foreshadowing of what Christ's sacrifice is. And it pictures these prisoners in this waterless pit. That, that is a, a metaphor of this hopeless situation 
that you can't do anything about. You're in this pit. You can't get out. And you're going to die of thirst. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You want me to be the kind of king you think you need at the moment. But I'm going to do something for you way beyond that. I'm not going to be the kind of king you think you need. I'm going to be the kind of king you really need. And I'm going to do things for you you couldn't imagine that are far deeper and far more significant than simply giving you freedom from Roman oppression. And what he does is he comes and he dies. And in his death, he meets our deepest needs because he does something about our guilt. He does something about our sin. What he does gives us forgiveness. What he does takes away that spiritual emptiness that drives us inside. What he does is he takes away that need for us to be constantly proving ourselves. What he does is he frees us from the power of sin in our lives. What he does is he gives us a freedom from death. You thought the Romans were the problem. They're not. Who cares if Israel's great again? I got something more important. So the question is, when he enters Jerusalem, how will they respond? Will they crown him or will they kill him? Which will it be? It's the same question for us. How will we respond to Jesus who is king? The one who is greater than we hope for, gentler than we expect. Will we crown him? Or will we kill him?